Good evening. Glad you could make it out tonight. Um, if you would, turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. That's where we will be at most of tonight. Joshua chapter 22. So I've entitled the lesson tonight, The War on Sin. And that idea is going to come from Joshua 22. So hopefully you'll be able to see what I mean by that as we go through the chapter. Um, but I think it's pretty well laid out for us. So we're going to go pretty much verse by verse through Joshua chapter 22. But as I'm going through this chapter, as we're talking about this idea of war on sin, there's a word that I want you to keep in mind. And I'm sure by now you've become familiar with this word. That word is koinonia. And while that's kind of a fun word to say, you know, it, there's also some really good spiritual application from this word. And I think it applies to Joshua chapter 22. Now, ever since Brother Ralph Walker visited us, we've been talking a lot as a church family about koinonia. And it just really helps us understand what it means for us to be the body of Christ. And so I hope that's been help helpful for you because it has, has been for me. Um, but I want to share like a specific example of how koinonia has helped me in my personal studies. And it's really helped me understand this Old Testament story of Joshua chapter 22. So I'm going to leave this word here on the screen for now because I want us, our minds to keep coming back to koinonia throughout this lesson. So... Recently, I went through Joshua 22. This was before uh, Ralph Walker came, and you know, it really stuck out with me. I kind of kept going back to it. It's just a really interesting story. Um, but after he presented those, the series of lessons on koinonia, I went back through this chapter again, and I kind of saw it in, in a different way. And there's several valuable parallels, I think, through this chapter about how we as God's people are to address sin in the midst of God's people. And I think it does that. It shows us how to do that without compromising koinonia. And so thinking about this word koinonia, just over and over again, as we go through chapter 22, I think everything's going to fall into place and we're really going to be able to see the beauty of this story. So, so we can orient ourselves here. We're going to do a quick background of where we're at. Um, if you would turn back with me really quick. I know I said to go to Joshua 22, but uh, we're going to go back to Numbers real quick. Numbers chapter 32, and I'm going to read a few verses, starting in verse 5, Numbers 32, verse 5, and they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Now, this is the tribe of Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh. Before they cross the Jordan River, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, they see the land east of the Jordan, and they want to stay there. They like it there. But then Moses tells them in verse 6, But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? So we see Moses is reminding them of this idea of koinonia. They had, whoops, <laughs> they had brothers in, their, in need of their help. And Moses was telling them they need to be aware of that. They need to go in and help their brothers. They need to go to war with their brothers. And, to, and so then they respond in verse 16. They came near to him saying, We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms ready to go therefore, or before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land, and we will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. So what we're doing is we're picking back up 
in Joshua 22, after this has happened, after they fulfilled what Moses had said. And so let's go ahead and read the first four verses of Joshua 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God, and now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents and the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan. So we see these tribes on the east side, or that wanted the land on the east side, being commended by Joshua for obeying Moses, for helping their brothers conquer the west side, for helping them, they could now go home. But there's an ish, a warning issued in verse 5. Joshua says, you can go, but be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And this verse is really going to be the key to the people's success in the promised land. Joshua is saying, go, go enjoy this rest. Go enjoy this land that God's given you. But remember that koinonia with God must be your first priority. Otherwise, it's not going to work out for you. And so they head back over to the east side of the Jordan. And, then we're going, and that's what through verse 9 is talking about. They go back over, and then we're going to be presented with a problem, with a conflict right off the bat. So verses, starting in verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Wow, so that escalated pretty quickly, right? The first four verses, they're being commended for helping their brothers. They're being commended for, doing, for obeying Moses, for doing what they were told. And now, just a few verses later, their brothers, who they had just helped, are now gathering for war against them. So what, what caused that? Why did building this altar invoke such a reaction from the people. Well, let's see what they, what they said about that in verse 13. The people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which, we have even, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? And for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? 
that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So the reason they gathered for war is because they saw this as a breach of faith. They thought their brothers were actively rebelling against God. And Phinehas is, is specifically mentioned as the one speaking here. And he said he was reminded of the sin at Peor. And so for us to understand, you know, why, why they got so mad, why are they going to war against their brothers, I think we need to understand what Phinehas, what scared him about the sin at Peor, what happened at Peor that caused this reaction. So we're going to go back to Numbers. Numbers chapter 25, and verses, starting in verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Israel was having koinonia, or fellowship with Baal, and not God at this time. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced them both, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague of the, on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So in this chapter, the sin at Peor that Phinehas was reminding the people of they were having relations with the people of Moab. They were having fellowship with Baal. They were offering these idolatrous sacrifices on these altars. And because of all this rebellion, God had sent a plague on his people. And they were all, they were, tons were dying. And Phinehas, who was also mentioned in Joshua chapter 22, it mentions he sees this, this Israelite man and this Midianite woman go in, into the tabernacle, into the tent of meeting, and with zeal for the Lord, he goes in and puts a stop to that. And he kills them both with a spear. And we might look at that and, whoa, that's, that's a little extreme, right? That's an overreaction on his part. But is it? Is it an overreaction? Because look at the consequence of this sin. 24,000 people died. And even more were going to die if Phinehas had not stepped up and done something about this. He realized the seriousness of sin. He realized that we are in a war on sin, and he was not afraid to confront that. And, you know, just keeping in with the seriousness of sin, it reminded me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, how serious Jesus took sin. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he said, If your right eye causes you to sin, just tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. And that's important because we take sin seriously because God takes it so seriously. And so with that in mind, it makes so much sense that Phinehas is the one that the people sinned 
to address their brothers in Joshua chapter 22. Phinehas is the one that confronts the people. He's reminded of the sin at Peor, and he knows that the altar for sacrifices to the Lord is in the tabernacle. So there was concern when he sees this altar being built over on the other side of the Jordan, concern for what the purpose of that was, and rightly so. And so I would say gathering for war was not an overreaction in this situation because sin cannot be tolerated. Phinehas recognized that, and the people of Israel recognized that. And so for us, I think there's application there. As the people of God, if we see what could be sin in our lives, in our brothers' and sisters' lives, if we recognize those patterns of the past, like Phinehas recognized the sin at Peor, if we recognize that, we need to make ready for war. We need to address it. We need to address the breach of faith. But with all that in mind, I think now is a good time to make an important distinction. In verse 12 of Joshua 22, the people gathered for war. They did not go straight into war. And I think that's an important difference. We see them wisely send a delegation to inquire of the people, is this really what it looks like? Is what I'm seeing really happening? Are they really repeating the sin at Peor? They didn't just assume that. And we talked about Phinehas already. You know, they sent someone who has proven himself to be zealous for the Lord. Send someone who is going to say and do what needs to be done. And so while, while sin needs to be quickly spotted, while it needs to be eradicated, we can't let it sit and grow, it's ever so important that in the process of this war on sin, that we are striving to protect, to preserve our koinonia, our unity in the process. And the title of this lesson is The War on Sin. We're not waging the war on our brothers and sisters. We're waging the war on sin. And so we need to search for those solutions that are going to strengthen our koinonia with, with, our, with God and with each other. And, you know, we saw that their first reaction was to gather for war. And I believe they were ready to do that if that's what it took to purify God's people. But that also wasn't the first thing they did. They gathered for war, but they didn't go to war. And I think that was going to be a last resort because we see their hearts in verse 19. Let's go ahead and read verse 19. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. I think this verse is key to understanding how we deal with the war on sin and when there is sin among God's people. But before we get into verse 19, I want you to look at this map with me. So in the center of the screen is the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is this physical, it's that blue line, is the physical barrier. And it divides the, most of the tribe of Israel, and it divides the half the tribe of Manasseh, Gad and Reuben, from the rest of them. And also from the tabernacle. Bah. Bah. <laughs> so there's this physical barrier. And so it's possible the people over there on the east side could have felt isolated or separated from the people of God, from God. And I think that's partially what the people thought was going on on the west side. They look over and see them building this altar, 
And so they're thinking, oh, you know, it's because they're over there and they want their own altar to offer sacrifices on, which they were not authorized to do that. And so they're going to get into their exact reasoning of why they built that altar in a few verses. But I think that's kind of helpful to think through, you know, kind of what could have been the mindset of the people. And it helps us understand why verse 19 is so important. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. So what's happening in this verse is the people are willing to give up part of their land, part of their inheritance, If that's what it takes to help their brothers not feel isolated from them and isolated from God and to keep them from feeling like they have to rebel against God. And I think that's so important for us as we're we're thinking about this war on sin and and sin in the midst of God's people. And and notice that that the solution um, isn't, well, you need to go do this right away. You need to change this. You're the problem here. Because they don't even know if it is a problem yet. And so instead of assuming that, their solution is, we'll do this, we'll, do this, we'll change this, if that helps you, if that helps your relationship with God. And so they were willing to give of themselves. And if, if that's not koinonia, then I don't know what is. Just think about the significance of that for a minute. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to give of ourselves when we see things that could be a stumbling block for our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to make those kind of sacrifices to make sure their relationship with God is strengthened? And James, I think, brings up this pretty much same point in James chapter 5. James chapter 5 and verse 19. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth... And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So the question I need to be asking myself is, am I concerned about the salvation of my brother? Am I looking out for my brother or sister in Christ? Because if not, I need to be. Because koinonia, unity, needs to be preserved at all costs. So in Joshua 22, the people... They were ready to go to war, but they first wisely sent that delegation to see what was going on, as well to offer a possible solution. So the next step that's left is to listen to what the response of the people on the east side was. We'll see what their actual motives were here. So starting in verse 21 of chapter 22, The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one God the Lord, the mighty one God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from the following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord's. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, 
Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we can say, behold, this copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Now when Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. In verse 33, the report was good in their eyes of the people of Israel, and they blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And so here they're going to explain, this is all a big misunderstanding. We did not build this in rebellion to the Lord. We didn't build it to offer sacrifices on. No, we build it as a reminder for future generations. Because we talked about that Jordan River being that physical boundary. They could have felt isolated. They saw that as a potential problem for the future. That they might not be allowed to cross over and worship God with their brothers anymore. And so they built this altar as this reminder that, yes, we are part of God's people too. We are allowed to cross over and worship God with you. And so here they had no intention of even using it wrongly. And so we see that the people hear this, and it pleases them, because this wasn't rebellion. And so God is blessed because of it. So in conclusion, God's law is not violated. Unity, koinonia, was maintained, and God is glorified through it all. Now I think, I know we went through that really quickly, um, but Joshua chapter 22, I think there's a lot of ways this situation could have ended up pretty badly if it wasn't handled in a right way. And I think the same thing can be true in the church. And it's so important that we realize that the real war is on sin, not on our brothers and sisters. And it's going to help us deal with any problem that might come up in a way that's pleasing to God. Because just imagine with me for a second, this story, how how different it would have been if they would have saw this altar being built and immediately gathered for war and ran over there you know, ignoring whatever their brothers were saying, you know, just assuming the worst of them, you know, really selfishly disregarding any fellowship they were sharing or they had shared. And what happens then is not only our feelings going to be hurt when we do that, but koinonia has been compromised by that point. And the people's relationship, not only to you, but to God is going to be hurt. And nothing good comes from that. And I think we need to remember what Paul says in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And that's what this is about. Standing firm together 
through this war on sin, practicing koinonia. So this week, let's make sure that we're declaring war on sin, not on our brothers and sisters. Let's make sure that we're finding ways to practice koinonia. And not just finding ways that we're not compromising it, but finding ways to contribute to it. And I think we've been given a great opportunity to do that starting next month. The elders have given us an opportunity to join this Koinonia Connections. So let's take advantage of that. Let's use that to strengthen each other. Because in this war on sin, if we want to make it through, we need the support of each other. Because without it, without the support of each other, without Koinonia with God and with each other, we can't make it through. So, I know I've given you a lot to think about tonight. We went through Joshua 22 really quickly, but I hope you, I hope you learned something from it, and I hope you go back and explore it further and share with me what you find. Um, and if nothing else, I hope you continue to think about this word, koinonia. Um, but if you have any questions about Joshua 22, I'd love to talk more with you. Um, just let me know. Um, tonight, maybe you're here. Maybe you haven't declared, declared war on sin yet. Maybe... Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you've welcomed, maybe you have sin in your life that you've welcomed in. You've given it a place to stay. But the problem with that is that's never worked for God's people in the past. And there's a saying that's, that's, that I've heard growing up that's stuck with me, and I'm sure you've, you've heard it before. But it's sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. And I think that's so accurate because ultimately, it's going to cost you your soul. And that's not a cost you know, I'm willing to pay. And so the war on sin starts by choosing to follow Jesus, by being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So if you'd like to make those changes tonight, please come forward as we sing.